If you would, take your Bibles with me and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin our study of the most natural epistle to study following 1 Peter. If we're going to look at 1 Peter, it would follow that we would look at 2 Peter next. And perhaps if there was a 3 Peter, we could consider 3 Peter after 2 Peter. We will turn our attention to 2 Peter and consider what God has for us in His inspired Word in this second letter to, uh, that Peter writes. 2 Peter chapter 1. Follow along as I read the first four verses of 2 Peter chapter 1. For these words carry the same weight as if Jesus Himself were here speaking them to us this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. Peter writes this, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." Would you join me in a word of prayer before we dive into our study of God's Word this morning? Lord God, these are Your words. The words that we have just read, I confess, will be the best part of what we consider this morning, for they are Your inspired, inerrant words. So would You guide us, Holy Spirit, lead us, direct us, as we seek to understand and apply Your Word to our life. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. In 1920, a five-foot-two dapper young man hit the streets of Boston with a dream of becoming wealthy. He set out to acquire money from a bank, but was turned down. And from that turning down, he turned to another idea that did, in fact, bring him wealth and luxury for a short time. The idea that this man had was an international postal reply coupon business. For those of us who don't know what international postal reply coupons are, they're basically like international prepaid postage coupons. So he bought, you could buy these overseas and bring them overseas back to the United States and be able to send a letter back overseas on the value of that coupon. So if you're in Spain and you're going to send a letter over to the States, you would buy one of these coupons in Spain, send it along with the letter to the States. The person in the States would write back to you and use that coupon to basically pay for the postage to go back to Spain. So he was going to set up a business based on these coupons. And he thought that if he bought these overseas and then exchanged them in the States in bulk, he could turn a large profit on this. Especially if he purchased these coupons in bulk from countries with weaker economies. Sounds good. So he started the business. The business was called the Securities Exchange Company. And by July of 1920, business was booming in Boston, where the company was located. 
The company supposedly purchased postal reply coupons in bulk, and then this man, with his financial wizardry, turned those coupons into cash. But by August 12th of that year, it all came crashing to the ground. Actually, not a lot came crashing to the ground because the whole thing was a scam. It was a fake. It was a reckless dream chased by an Italian immigrant named Charles Ponzi. His Ponzi scheme was so successful because he was able to winsomely convince people they could turn a quick 50% profit on their investment within 90 days if they invested in his company. In reality, his company amounted to nothing more than borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. It was, it was a fake investment with a fake promise, but he persuaded thousands of people to buy into his scam. Well, as we come to this letter of Second Peter, Peter writes this letter to confront false teaching that on its face looks like true teaching. But it's not the genuine thing. It's a scam. Peter wants to set the record straight on the truth before he dies. As we consider 2 Peter even in our day, 2 Peter speaks to problems that we face regarding fake Gospels in our time. Let's briefly consider some background information for 2 Peter, and then we'll dive into these four verses and look at how they apply and what they mean for us. So the author is Peter. Just like 1 Peter, we have 2 Peter written by Peter. Remember that this is the disciple. He's the outspoken leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's the first apostle to share the Gospel with the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, he goes and shares Christ with Cornelius. He is the apostle who speaks out for the Gentiles at the Jerusalem council and pushes back against that there should be two different economies of of the Gospel working out in Christianity for Jews and for Gentiles. It's this Peter who writes 2 Peter. The recipients are a little bit more vague. We are not told who the recipients are like we are in 1 Peter. More than likely, his audience in this letter is similar, if not the exact same audience as 1 Peter. Why is he writing this letter? There has to be a cause, right? You're not just going to write random things at random times to random people and they be included in God's intentional and helpful word. His occasion is that there is false teaching that has arisen. And Peter is writing to these believers one last time to remind them of the genuine Gospel. And not just about what the Gospel is, but about the implications and responsibilities that the Gospel has on them to grow in holiness. So Peter frames this letter with a significant theme. Look with me, if you would, at verse 2. 2 Peter 1 Verse 2, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in something. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Flip a couple pages over with me, if you would, to 2 Peter 3.18. 2 Peter 3.18, and as Peter prepares to close the letter, listen to these words that he writes in 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So as we come to this letter, Peter frames the letter with this theme of the knowledge of God or of Jesus Christ. And this knowledge is more than an academic book-learning knowledge. Peter is concerned that the knowledge his readers gain translates into growth. Back in 2 Peter chapter 1, look with me at verse 8. 2 Peter 1, verse 8, he writes, For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This knowledge is more than academic learning. This is a knowledge that is gained that translates into growth. And in this letter, Peter is concerned that his readers not fall into the problem that God indicted the Israelites for, as we heard in Hosea 4 earlier. That his people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Peter is setting out to correct that here. Not just to have knowledge, but to have true knowledge. To have genuine knowledge. To have Jesus-accurate knowledge. So to that end, Peter seeks to remind them. If you look down with me at 2 Peter 1, verse 12, he writes, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So Peter is seeking to remind the recipients of his letter and to remind us of the necessity of knowing and growing in Christ. That we need to have a deep knowledge of God and that there needs to be activity in growing in Christ Jesus. So as we turn our attention to these first four verses of 2 Peter, the central idea of these four verses is this. It is crucial for true Christians to know and live in the reality of what Christ has given them. It is crucial for true Christians to know and live in the reality of what Christ has given them. We see that Christ has given them three things. They are going to be recipients of three things. And the three things they receive will serve as our three points to consider this morning. So if you would, consider with me first that they are recipients of equal faith recipients of equal faith. We see this worked out for us in 2 Peter 1.1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He, Peter begins this letter in a very similar way to what we saw in 1 Peter 1 many months ago. In both letters, he identifies himself using his God-given name, Peter. And in both, he identifies himself as an apostle. That is, one who speaks with authority from God. However, in 2 Peter, there are two things that we see added to his greeting. He says, Simon Peter. He says that he is a bondservant an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why those two additions? Well, Simon is his Jewish name. So if anyone was trying to undermine his credibility, he has both Peter and Simon as the 
unique identifiers of who this is that is writing this letter. It's not some other Peter. It's Simon Peter. Bondservant refers to his position. The position of of humility under the authority of Jesus Christ. He is a bondservant. He's not coming and writing to them because he has some great epiphany. He is writing to them because he is under the authority of God. Both additions in this letter serve to authenticate his message against the false teachers that he addresses in chapter 2. The false teachers, as we will learn in coming months, they are proud, they are arrogant, they feel like they have all the answers, and against that we have the stark contrast of Peter being a humble bondservant, someone who has been given authority from someone else. He is not writing this from in and of himself. So Peter wants to set the record straight on the Gospel. He doesn't want someone else to take his name and associate it with errant teaching. So he greets these believers by including Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. He then identifies who he's writing to. He writes to a special group of people. These are people who have obtained like precious faith with us. We could also translate this phrase as those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. The truth that Peter communicates in this phrase is worth pondering for a moment. Think how striking it is that he would say to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. Keep in mind, if we, if we assume that the writing, that the audience of 2 Peter is the same as 1 Peter, these are mainly Gentile believers. And for him to say that they have obtained like precious faith with us. That could be a reference to Simon Peter and, and the Jewish Christians. That could be a reference to Simon Peter and the apostles. But what a striking thing it is for Peter to say that there is a precious faith, a like precious faith, a faith of equal standing that the Gentiles have with the Jews and even with the apostles? Especially when you consider that the relationship between Jewish and Gentile Christians was a significant theological problem in the first century. This is, this is not just a greeting. This has shockwave implications for those who are receiving these words from Peter. He is assuring them, you are not a second-rate Christian. You don't have a sub-apostolic Christianity. No, 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 no. You have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. But it's interesting that he says they have obtained it. This this refers to receiving something as a gift with no cooperation or assistance. For you to obtain it or to receive it, the word literally means to receive from divine will or favor. In Acts chapter 1, verse 17, it is used to describe how Judas became a disciple, that he obtained that ministry. So these believers have obtained like precious faith with us. This faith of equal quality and substance. This faith that whether you are an apostle or just a normal 
everyday Joe Schmo believer, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, that you have a faith of equal quality and substance. Peter's point is that all believers of all places, classes, and ethnic backgrounds share the same faith, share the same blessings. And Peter concludes this first verse by noting the basis for this equal standing that all Christians share. The basis for this is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is significant that it is by His righteousness and not ours. It's not even mostly His righteousness. He doesn't give us a pie chart so that we can see how much righteousness God has and how much righteousness we have as it pertains to our salvation. No, it is all by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is not a comparable righteousness to ours. Jesus' righteousness is not merely a better righteousness than ours. It is a totally different quality of righteousness than we possess. We know this because Peter adds that this righteousness is the righteousness of none other than our God and Savior Jesus Christ. His righteousness is God's righteousness, which is superior in every way to ours. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, God writes these words to the people of Israel. He says in Deuteronomy 9, verse 4, Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives out from before you, and that He may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people." Brothers and sisters, are we not also stiff-necked people? We are sinful. We are stubborn. We are rotten to the core. And we don't have equal standing before God because of our righteousness. We have equal standing of faith in quality and quantity because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The truth that Peter wrote about in 1 Peter 1, that we have this incredible living hope we have been begotten to through God's mercy. We have obtained that standing with the saints because of God's moral excellence and perfection. Not ours. Brother and sister in Christ, because of Jesus and His perfect righteousness, you and I have equal standing before God as giants of the faith. How amazing is that? That as we look at, as we look through our Bible and we consider men like Peter and Paul and we say, oh man, their, their faith in God is so much more. They must have had a, a substantially closer dose of Jesus Christ than we do. That's not what Peter says here. He says that we have obtained faith of equal standing with Peter and the other Christians that are with him. Friend, have you obtained faith of equal standing from Jesus Christ? 
Does your status before God today rest on you? Peter points us to the fact that it is only on the basis of Christ's righteousness that we have any standing before God. So if you are here and you have never trusted in Christ for salvation, hear the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21 again, that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for you so that you might be the righteousness of God in Him. Friend, the solution to your sin problem is not do better, try harder. It's come to Christ and trust in Him for salvation. So to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, we are recipients of equal faith. Secondly, we are recipients of effective power. We are recipients of effective power. And we see this played out in verses 2 and 3. Peter writes, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. As is standard with a letter, Peter includes a well-wish. But it is not just a well-wish we should gloss over. He wishes for grace and peace to be multiplied to the believers. But he doesn't stop there. He wants their grace and peace to be multiplied in something. Grace and peace to be multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace are two foundational elements for every Christian. Without God's grace, we have no salvation. And without peace, we are still in conflict with God. We need grace and peace to be multiplied to us in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Not only that, but as we referenced earlier, this reference to knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ points us to a key theme here in 2 Peter. That it is important for us to gain a deeper knowledge of God, not just through book learning, but through experiencing the power of Christ in our lives through the Holy Spirit. Believers come to God and they come to Jesus in conversion, but it doesn't stop there. This is not a, a, I get in the door and then drop that knowledge and coast through the rest of my life. Peter is going to walk through in the verses to come what the implications of that are. You have this faith of equal standing. What does that mean for you? Well, it means that you have the power that you need to live a life of godliness. Peter connects verses 2 and 3. In verse 3, he speaks of how God's divine power has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. This power is through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. In these verses, verses 2 and 3, Peter shows us that we have been given effective power by God. And there is a twofold effectiveness that we see in this divine power that He has given to us. The first is there is effective power in calling us by glory and virtue. Without the effective call of God in salvation, we don't obtain faith of equal standing. We don't receive everything we need for life, eternal life. And we don't have a shot at godliness because you can't be godly without God. 
So God calls us by His glory and virtue. Together, His glory or His splendor and His virtue, that is His goodness, speak of the divine moral excellence of Christ, especially the beauty of His goodness. In salvation, God does not show partiality, nor does He save some through an under-the-table means. Everything God does, including calling us and saving us, is in accordance with His glory and virtue. It's above reproach. It's just. It's morally superior and flawlessly perfect. So there's effective power displayed in calling us by glory and virtue. But there's also effective power displayed in giving us all that we need for life and godliness. Brothers and sisters, what God starts, He finishes. Paul affirms this in Philippians 1.6 when he says, being confident of this one thing, that He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If God called you, He will justify you, He will sanctify you, and He will glorify you. There is a reference that we see back to 1 Peter 1, 3-5 here. Because this is the same God who has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. He is the one who has by His abundant mercy begotten us to a living, eternal inheritance that is incorruptible and doesn't fade away. And it's preserved for us. And we are preserved for it. What more do we need for eternal life than Jesus? What more do we need for godliness than Jesus? In Jesus Christ, we have all we need for this life, the life to come, and to live godly lives now and in the future. Because of we have been recipients of effective power. If our righteousness is found in Jesus, then the power for our lives must also be found in Jesus. We need the grace and peace that comes from the knowledge of God and of Jesus to be multiplied to us each and every day so that we might live godly lives before God. So brother and sister in Christ, studying and reading God's Word, gathering with God's people, listening to the Word of God taught and preached are all ways we can grow in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It helps us to steward the fact that we have been recipients of effective power. But third, we see that we are recipients of eternal promises. Recipients of eternal promises. Look with me, if you will, at 2 Peter 1, 4. He picks up from verse 3 and says, "...by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." Verse 4 shows us how the equal standing in Christ and the divine power for godliness benefits us. We have been given exceedingly great and precious promises, and through that, it allows us to be partakers of the divine nature. These great and precious promises are given to us on the basis of the glory and virtue of Jesus Christ. 
Here we see that Peter is emphasizing that our calling is all of God. It is on the basis of His glory and goodness that we were given everything needed for a godly life as well as these great and precious promises. It's interesting in our text that it says exceedingly great. As if great is not a term sufficient enough. So we need a greater great. A greatly great. An excessively great. A a greater than great. Or great squared. We need lots of greatness when we are referring to the incredibleness of these promises. These are not just standard, normal, everyday promises. These are exceedingly great and precious promises promises. Well, maybe you are asking several questions that I asked when I came to this verse. One of those is, what are the promises? What are these exceedingly great and precious promises? Because Peter doesn't list them. There's not a nice little bullet list right after this that says promise number one, promise number two, promise number three, promise number four. These are all of the exceedingly great and precious promises. One of them could be the new heavens and the new earth. And we see the same word, the same promise word used in 2 Peter 3.13 when Peter says, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's definitely on the table. That is a pretty epic, great promise that God has made to us. Whatever the promises are, Peter's emphasis is not on us trying to identify the promises, but to understand how we participate and we are partakers of the promises. Because these promises, these exceedingly great and precious promises, they allow us to participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world. Well, that ought to raise a second question for us. In what sense are we partakers of the divine nature? We came in here today, to the best of my knowledge, as full-blown, full-blooded human beings. So in what sense can Peter say that these promises allow us to be partakers of the divine nature? Peter here is speaking to the fact that because of what Christ graciously did for us, there is now something inside of us that makes us more like the world of the divine than the world of human beings. That sounds kind of mystical and like tense. What exactly do we mean by something inside of us that makes us more like the world of the divine than like the world of human beings. Well, the context is key here. Because in the context, Peter is referring to the ethical realities of godliness back in verse 3. Godliness is a divine reality. It's part of the divine nature. For God to be God, He has to be godly. So how is godliness possible unless we are able to partake in the divine nature? If God does not change our nature, how are we to be godly? And so it is because we have obtained a faith of equal standing. And it is because we have been called by God through His glory and virtue 
And it is because we have been given these exceedingly great and precious promises that we are able to be partakers of the divine nature. That when He calls us to be holy, when He says, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness, that's 100% correct. And as we grow in godliness, we are partakers of the divine nature. One final question in this verse. How have we escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust? We're all here, right? We haven't escaped. My jetpack is not attached. I'm not planning on zooming out of here. Neither are you. We are still here. So in what sense can Peter say that those who are partakers of the divine nature have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust? Peter here speaks to the cause of corruption in our world. As we look around our world, we see corruption. Where's corruption come from? He tells us that the corruption that is in the world is through lust, sinful desire. James 4.1 tells us that where do conflicts and wars and strife come from? They come because we are at war with one another. We have passions. We have lusts and desires that are sinful. And we're not always going to agree to disagree on things. Corruption in the world comes from lust. And Christians have escaped the corruption of lust in that we are no longer enslaved to that corrupting desire. When we obtained the faith of equal standing, when we were called by God, by His glory and virtue, when He gave us everything we needed that pertained to life and godliness, we escaped being enslaved to the corruption that is in the world through lust. Paul talks about this when he says we are not to reckon ourselves as slaves to sin. Because why? We died with Christ. We have been freed from the power and the bondage of sin. We have been given divine power that enables us to live a life of godliness and holiness. Peter wants us to come away from these verses awed at God's amazing grace and our dependence on it. If we don't have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we have no faith of equal standing. We have no shot at godliness. We have no shot at doing anything that God tells us to do. But, if we have a faith of equal standing by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, He has given us power. Divine power. To to do all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has given us great and precious promises that allow us to be partakers of the divine nature and escape the enslaving corruption of this world through lust. So brother and sister in Christ, how thankful and joyful are you for what God has provided for us in and through Christ? 
He's given us faith in conversion. He's given us divine power for godliness. He's given us very great promises that allow us to be partakers of the divine nature and escape this corrupt world. All three things we are recipients of and ought to give thanks and praise to God for giving them to us. And Peter starts out the letter with this incredible recollection for us. We need to be reminded of this. As we wrap up, brother and sister in Christ, why are you a Christian? That's what Peter is reminding his believers of here as he's writing to them, why are you a Christian? Well, based on our text, it is because God called you. Chapter 1, verse 3. It's because of Jesus' righteousness, not yours. Verse 1. So are these realities part of your knowledge of God? As you go about Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, do those enormous realities impact your life? As you work your 9 to 5, as you work third shift, as you stay at home and mother the kids that God has given you, as you search and deal with opportunities that come across your path, as you seek discernment for how to make choices, as you deal with the guilt and shame of sin, as you deal with the high of of following Christ and are tempted to adopt self-righteousness, do these two realities inform? Are they part of your knowledge of God? Brothers and sisters, these realities serve as the grounds for humility in our life with one another. If we've obtained faith of equal standing through Jesus Christ, then I am no better than you. And you are no better than me. We are are all saved with the same quality of faith because of Jesus' righteousness. But in these verses, Peter also highlights the tension that exists between the head and the heart in this passage. It is easy for us to have a sterile walk with God, void of emotion. We have a large academic knowledge of God. We know Him. We can recite loads of things about God. And it's very easy to have a knowledge of God that is sterile. It's void of emotion. But it's also easy for us to have such a warm, cozy feeling of God that you and I know nothing of who He actually is. Peter wants both in moderation with neither in excess. There is a deep knowledge of God that is experiential and emotional, but that must be rooted in an informed, studious knowledge of God. And as Peter begins this letter, that is what he is seeking to remind his audience. What he is seeking to remind you and I of this morning. So may grace and peace be multiplied to us in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You for allowing us to obtain a like precious faith by the righteousness of Jesus Christ.
Thank you for giving us divine power that equips us for godliness. Thank you for giving us these very great, precious promises that because of them, you allow us to be partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption of this world through lust. Help us to be awed by that. Help us to be wowed by that. Help those realities to dominate our view of us in your sight. Help those realities to dominate how we view you. May we view you for who you truly are. We pray this in your risen Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.